Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, February 3rd, 2020. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Brad, how's it going? Uh, you know, not too bad. It seems like we're doing better off than, than most of the rest of the Slash Film team. Yeah, our staff is a little banged up. A bunch of people are sick. I think Chris and HT are sick. Jacob has a cold. He's still around. Um, Peter's Peter's got a sore throat. Yeah, sore throat. So uh, it's just you and I on the podcast today. Hopefully we stay healthy and everybody else feels better soon. But uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the news. So um, recently we had the, uh, uh, I guess, a pair of awards ceremonies as we head a little bit closer to the Oscars. Um, the WGA Awards and the BAFTA Awards were announced uh, not too long ago. So um, why don't you just run through a couple of the highlights of those winners and um, maybe contextualize what this could mean for potential Oscar winners. Yeah, so uh, let's start with the Writers Guild of America Awards. Uh, these awards are obviously given out to the various writers of films and television programs released throughout 2019. Oftentimes, these are the kinds of awards that help predict the Oscars. Uh, unlike the Golden Globes, these are voted on by actual members of the Academy. Most of them are, anyway. Uh, in this case, they are members of the Writers Guild of America. And for the uh, Big Screenplay Awards, both original and adapted, uh, original ended up going to Parasite, and Adapted went to Jojo Rabbit, uh, which is relatively surprising. Um, 1917 has been coming away with some uh, big wins lately, and a lot of people have been pushing for movies like uh, Little Women or The Irishman for, for adapted screenplay. So Jojo Rabbit coming out with uh, a win along with Parasite is kind of a big deal, and it gives them a little bit of an extra push heading into the Oscars that they might walk away with maybe more trophies than we're thinking. Um, it's you know it's always tough to say because the guilds don't always uh, agree with the Oscars, but uh, like I said, they oftentimes can be a good indicator of what of what's to come. So I know you're a big fan of Jojo Rabbit. What do you think about that movie winning the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar here? Because as you mentioned, it was up against The Irishman, uh, Little Women, Joker, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And I think for a lot of people online, this was sort of a a, a huge like upset almost for this movie. Um, I guess I just want to tap into your thoughts and we can talk about this a little bit more in just a second. 
Um, yeah, it's. I mean, for Dredd Reb, I think this is a big win, especially because uh, it hasn't had a huge amount of buzz heading into the Oscars. It's gotten a lot of nominations, but it's one of those movies where the accolades are mostly just coming in the form of nominations rather than any big wins. And uh, I think it shows that there's maybe, you know, uh, a swell in support for this movie. And I'm not sure necessarily why or if it's an indication that it could end up winning against some of the other potential Oscar nominees. Um, but I, I think it's great. There, There is some, I guess, a little bit of blowback from people who don't think that Jojo Rabbit is necessarily the one that should be picked. There's a lot of support for uh, Little Women out there, at least among the film Twitter circle. And that's mostly because Greta Gerwig did this great thing by making a movie that has been adapted countless times before and done something refreshing with it, made it feel new, and did it in a way that has a lot of people giving it plenty of acclaim. So I, you know, I don't necessarily know um, if this is, you know, something that will push through through the Oscars, but personally, as much as I love Jojo Rabbit, I think it's just great for uh for taika to get get a win for something like this yeah yeah i think um you know the i guess the the blowback to the blowback that i've seen was that uh, jojo rabbit which of course is based on a book is apparently so different from the book that maybe that's part of the reason that people are um that the people in the writers guild are uh sort of heaping some praise on this film because of what taika did with it and how he sort of um changed the tone so drastically from from the original source material. So maybe that's part of it too. Um, I, I personally would have gone with little women here, but I'm not in the writer's guild. So <laughs> there we are. Uh, if, if, if anything, I feel like the, the blowback the blowback you're talking about too is like, even though it's different from the source material, like I feel like if anything, maybe that's more of a reason to reward it for being such a great adapted screenplay because it's something that took the material and did something different with it, much in the same way that, that Greta Gerwig did with Little Women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to say. I, I In in poor terms, I was trying to say that that's, <laughs> uh, that's exactly uh, my guess as to why there's so much support there. So um, um, let's, let's jump on. Uh, no, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, now just a quick mention on the, the TV side, uh, since the WGA Awards do also award TV, HBO came away with a lot of big uh, awards because Succession, Watchmen, uh, Barry, and Chernobyl all won awards. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, they, they had a really big night at the, the WGA Awards. So if you want to see the full list of winners, uh, it also includes um, awards for uh, the episodic drama and animation and uh, that all those other TV programs. You can check out the full list on Slash Realm. Awesome. Uh, so let's jump over to the BAFTAs. And this is like the equivalent of um, like like uh, England's equivalent of the Oscars, right? Yeah, exactly. This is the uh, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Awards. Uh, and they, they tend to skew a little bit more towards British films uh, for obvious reasons. So it should come as no surprise that both 1917 and director Sam Mendes came out on top with a win for best film and for best director. And just for good measure, 1917 also won uh, Outstanding British Film, which is an award that they give specifically to films that were made uh, by British filmmakers uh, across the pond. So no surprises there. Even the Best Actor Awards all went to the same people that it seems like they're, they're going to go to for the Oscars. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix won for Joker, Renee Zellweger won for Judy, Laura Dern won for Marriage Story for Supporting Actress, and Brad Pitt won for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for Supporting Actor. So these these all seem like dead locks for the acting categories once the Oscars roll around. Um, and it just continues to spell more uh, of a, a positive spin for 1917 winning the Oscar, uh, if it comes to that. But again, you know, there there has been an uptick in support for movies like Parasite and Jojo Rabbit and whatnot. So we there there's the chance that Parasite 
could pull, you know, quote unquote, an upset, even though plenty of people would be very happy to see Parasite win. Uh, it just depends on, you know, how the Academy has been campaigned to, uh, you know, over these months and whether or not Parasite has gotten in front of enough eyes to really get that uh, that support that it needs to push past 1917. Yeah. Man, the thing is, I I really like 1917. I love Parasite. I think I would be, ultimately, I would be pleased with a 1917 win. It would not be, like, uh, a Green Book win, for example, or something where I'm like, oh, my God, the Oscars are so terrible. I, I feel like there's enough enough good things about 1917 to for you know anybody to feel good about that winning um but parasite man if that won best picture that would be kind of an incredible thing i would i would love that i and obviously like it ha- that movie has a ton of support at slash film because it was our number one you know collective movie of 2019 overall when we did our big um you know year end of the year uh, collective site list what do you think Brad are you uh, where I guess I guess as you just mentioned, it really does sort of seem like it's pretty much down to 1917 versus Parasite for Best Picture. What would what did you what would you make of either of those winners? Uh, I'm pretty much on the same page with you. I think 19, 1917 is fantastic. Uh, it's very well made. It's uh, intense, suspenseful, dramatic. You know, emotionally hard hitting. Uh, but you know, Parasite is you know on a different level. It just it does so much. Uh, in within you know the span of the you know two hours or two and a half hours what, what I forget what the running time is um, that it's it's hard to define as a movie in a single genre you know it's it's a thriller but it's also a family drama it's also extremely funny um, and it's very violent and it just it takes you on this true roller coaster of emotions and excitement in a way that few films do uh, you know it's usually so easy to shoehorn a movie into a specific genre and Parasite is really special. In, in the way that it's hard to be classified. And I haven't heard a bad thing from really anybody uh, about Parasite. You know, it's, you yeah. don't hear any bad press about it or anybody being, uh, you know, pushing you know it, it away from uh, being voted on. So it's just, it's one of those movies where I think that it, it could have the power to, you know, make, have a big presence at the Oscars. Yep, and the Oscars are this coming Sunday, so uh, we don't have much longer until we figure out, you know, what's going to be crowned the ultimate uh, ultimate champion of the year, 2019. So um, we'll we'll obviously be closely, uh, you know, following that story closely. Uh, we may have a couple more uh, stories uh, as this week progresses in the in the final, you know, lead up to the Oscars. But um, in the meantime, let's jump on into our next story, which is that a Hamilton movie is finally coming out in 2021. So Disney announced today that they are going to be releasing uh, a, a film based on, well, <laughs> it's not really based on um, the the Lin-Manuel Miranda smash Broadway hit musical Hamilton. It really just is that uh, experience. It's it's in 2016, uh, right before the original Broadway cast um, sort of uh, went their separate ways, they decided to film, do a filmed version of the actual stage production. I think there was, you know, there were audiences in the crowd and everything over the course of two nights. And so they sort of like captured it for posterity and they knew that they were going to do something with it. They weren't quite sure what they, I think they figured eventually, hey, we'll release this as a as a movie so people can experience this because, uh, as people probably know, Hamilton is like you know a, a massive. I think it won something like eleven Tony Awards and it's you know this huge cultural phenomenon. But uh, tickets to this thing have been very very expensive for so it's it's uh, prohibitively expensive for a lot of people to to be able to see this show. So the plan was always to 
film the original cast, including Lin-Manuel Miranda in the lead role, um, you know, film the entire show and then release it to the public later. And uh, we just found out that Disney is going to be releasing this in uh, North America on October 15th, 2021. So um, it seems like the uh, these long-held plans are finally coming to fruition. Um, Brad, it's still so far out, though. It is. You were talking about this uh, when, when this news broke in our Slack channel earlier. Um, what do you think about this? Yeah, this is awesome. Like you just said, it's it's hard for some people to pay enough to get a ticket to go see this on stage. Uh, and even if you had the money, sometimes getting the tickets uh, is not easy. A lot of times when the show comes around to various major cities on stage, tickets sell out immediately. Uh, we, my, my girlfriend and I were able to go uh, last year, but we had to wait a while after the tickets were initially on sale just because a lot of the shows sold out very quickly. Um, it just recently finished up here or is finishing up here in Chicago before it moves on elsewhere, I think. Um, so th- I think this is just a, it's a great way for people to be able to see this without having to pay a lot of money. Obviously, they'll still have to go to the theater to see it. I do wonder if the excitement and interest will still be there by the time this comes out, because uh, obviously Hamilton was is a big deal and it won so many Tonys. But, you know, the, the kind of, uh, I don't know, the life of those kinds of Broadway sensations don't really last as long as I think maybe movies do mm-hmm. simply because a lot less people get to see them. And so this, this could create a new swell of, of interest and excitement around it. But I just wonder if people are just kind of over Hamilton or if there will be just as much interest in seeing it once it gets released in theaters. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of was like how cool it will be for, um, for, uh, students to be able to watch this because I would have loved to have seen something like this when I was in, you know, elementary school or junior high or something and learning about the founding fathers. So I guess if, you know, for no other reason than maybe like field trips to the theater or when it eventually comes on home video or something being for, you know, substitute teachers to be able to throw this on, um, you know, (laughs) while kids are in class and stuff, I think it's a really cool thing for people to have. So, um, yeah, I, I do wonder, like you, if it, if it really is going to cause like another groundswell of interest or if that interest is just sort of like been low key sustained, you know, ever since the, the thing became the, this really like pop culture phenomenon that it, that it was when it debuted in what, 2015, I think. So um, and it's, it sounds like they might be shooting it in like a unique way or, or maybe it, it was, or rather it was shot in a unique way since they already recorded it. Yeah, they're calling it uh, live capture. So the the. Um, Official press release says the film of the original Broadway cast performing Hamilton is a leap forward in the art of live capture. This movie transports its audience into the world of the Broadway show in a uniquely intimate way, combining the best elements of live theater and film. The result is a cinematic stage performance that is a wholly new way to experience Hamilton. So, you know, a lot of that is probably like buzzwordy kind of stuff, but I do wonder if it's if it really is just like they had you know, people with steady cams like running around on the stage, you know, with the performers capturing the choreography up close and personal, or if they had like, you know, jib arms and cranes and stuff like swooping through the actual theater, like being able to, to, um, instead of just having like a camera really far back and locked off and, and sort of, um, a static boring image, you know, as all of the things play out in front of you, if it's going to be more, uh, dynamic visually, it sort of uh, implies that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what this looks like. I'm actually going to go see 
Hamilton with my wife um, for a second time. And when it comes to the Pantages, uh, I think it's next month um, or yeah, March or April here in Los Angeles. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about seeing this version with the original cast because obviously uh, I've been listening a lot to, as I'm sure a million people have um, been listening a lot to the uh, the actual like Broadway cast recording and all that stuff. So it'll be cool to see like that version come to life with with those performers who who all you know won a ton of awards and and were so um, you know acclaimed during that show's original run. So. And for what it's worth, uh, apparently, uh, according to Deadline, Disney paid $75 million, uh, for the worldwide rights to run it in theaters. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I think when I was doing some research for the to write up that article, I saw that there several years ago, there was news that they were, you know, studios were sort of um, vying for the rights to this. And there was talk that uh, it could be sold for as much as $50 million. But man, they, Disney really shelled out. And I guess that makes sense, too, since they have, you know, a really good working relationship with Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's um, working on the score for Little Mermaid. He's He was in Mary Poppins Returns and all that. So I think, um, you know, he's he's slowly finding a, uh, a maybe a studio home um, at Disney. So we'll have to see what, what sort of uh, fruits that relationship bears eventually, too. Um, all right, let's jump into the world of Mission Impossible. So um, uh, Christopher McQuarrie is directing two back-to-back Mission Impossible sequels, and he's bringing back a character from the original film. Who do we know uh, is going to be joining, Brad? The cast of the uh, upcoming Mission Impossible sequels that are being shot back-to-back is already pretty stacked. In addition to all the returning cast members, people like Shea Wiggum and Nicholas Holt and Haley Atwell are joining. Uh, but the latest edition is an awesome one because it's the first time that we're getting a cast member back from the original Mission Impossible movie other than Tom Cruise himself. Uh, and this particular edition is an awesome one because it's Henry uh, Zerny or Cerny. He's got one of those weird CZ uh, names. Yeah, I think it's beginning. Zerny. Yeah. Zerny. There we go. Um, and for those of you that don't know who that is, he played Kittredge in the original Mission Impossible movie, who was the director of IMF, uh, who was actually after Ethan Hunt for most of the movie because they believed that he was the mole in IMF. And so uh, they were um, opposed to each other for a while, then ended up working together once it was revealed that Jim Phelps, John Voight's character, was the original mole. Uh, and when Christopher McQuarrie announced it on Twitter, uh, he just posted uh, an image of um, Henry with the caption that says, there's no escaping the past. So this is pretty cool. Um, I love uh, Kittredge as a character in the original Mission Impossible. The scene with Ethan and Kittredge at that like weird aquarium restaurant mm-hmm. is awesome. Like the, the delivery uh, Henry Zerny has um, or Zerny has in that scene is awesome he's so intimidating and like just pure business through it all and so bringing him back is awesome i'm interested to see how exactly you know the past from this original movie comes back for these sequels um it's this is just it's very exciting the 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 way that they're bringing a bunch of people together for these two movies i love this this thing that major studio blockbusters are doing now where you know you're in like the late entries of a franchise but it really it does feel like a lot of these and and um fast and furious is another one where it's sort of like uh it really respects you know the, the movies that have come before like they really go out of their way to um sort of not you know tip their their caps to uh the movies that really like got these franchises to where they are and and the players that were involved to to sort of help uh shepherd that success in the first place i feel like this is a really good example of that you know the, these movies have the cast has evolved over the years and all that stuff but anytime they're able to 
uh, loop the story back around on itself and, and integrate these characters in a in an organic way. Um, it's always really exciting for me to see. I mean, I, I'm sure some people could look at it as just like pandering or nostalgia or whatever, but um, I think McCory is one of those guys who's normally pretty smart about the way that he incorporates characters like this. So I also, like you, I'm a big fan of that specific scene and, and that whole, like, you've never seen me very upset. Like, oh, that whole, <laughs> all of that. So I feel like the word upset should have been trending worldwide when <laughs> when uh, Henry Zerny was, was announced to be part of this movie's cast. So, um, yeah, I'm really thrilled to see what happens here. Mission Impossible 7 comes to theaters uh, July 23rd, 2021, and Mission Impossible 8 hits on August 5th, 2022. So we have a little while before we have to, or before we get to see these um, these movies back to back. But um, man, I'm I'm stoked about this. Uh, so I mentioned Fast and Furious uh, during, I guess, right before the Super Bowl, uh, the trailer for for F9. Uh, <laughs> It. And Brad, I mean, how awesome is this thing? I know you're not like the biggest Fast and Furious fan, but even you have to admit this trailer pretty much rules, right? No, this trailer was great. I, I was laughing at it in such like an, an entertained way. Like, man, this is ridiculous. But also I'm just I'm just loving it. It's just absolutely insane action uh, nonsense. And yeah, yeah, like it's, you know, I'm, I'm all in for this one. Yeah, man. Uh, so I, I just wanted to plug really quickly. I did a, a trailer breakdown, um, where you can see some of the, the biggest and best moments that you may or may not have missed. There's like a blink and you miss it cameo from a couple characters from, uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift in there. So, uh, check that out. Um, and then I guess before we move on, um, Brad, are you like, have you seen all of the Fast and Furious movies? Do you know enough about the the saga to like understand how huge of a deal it is that Han is back at the end of this thing? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, that he became a much bigger deal in the franchise around the time that I started paying more attention to these movies. Um, and I remember it really sucked when they got rid of him. Uh, and you know, it was a, that was a big catalyst for you know Gal Gadot leaving the tra- the franchise as well. So, yeah, the fact that everyone's been talking about finally seeing some justice for Han since, uh, you know, Jason Statham did him bad is is a, a huge deal. Yeah, and the trailer makes no... Uh, it doesn't even offer any explanation about how he's alive or whether or not it's actually him or maybe like a twin brother or something. I don't think it is. I really think it is Han. It's going to be very interesting to see how they talk their way around that because they've shown us in, I think, two or three movies now the explosion that apparently claimed Han's life. And it looked like there was no way he was going to be able to wriggle his way out of that crash of a, a car that then burst into flames. So uh, I'm very, very curious to see what, you know, what ridiculous way they come up with um, to, to save that actor's life. But I, I just love seeing Sung Kang back in the, the fold here. So uh, I'm curious. And, and John Cena as Vin Diesel's brother. I mean, it's just so laughable and, and so totally ridiculous but uh yeah I'm, I'm so stoked for this even though i was very very disappointed by hobbs and shaw and pretty let down by the fate of the furious the fact that justin lynn is back to direct this has just i mean it's just pulled me right back in so i'm, I'm stoked to see this as well I, w- I will say as great as it is to see han back i'm almost a little disappointed with how they brought him back it felt like it was a little lackluster because i almost would have liked all of a sudden for him to just like appear in the middle of like a chase sequence 
or something where no one is expecting it as opposed to be like, hey, here's Han. He's eating some snacks. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things I point out in the the breakdown is um, there's this moment where this massive truck gets flipped over. I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear that, Brad, but there's a uh, it's very, very windy in Los Angeles right now. And and my windows are rattling as I'm <laughs> recording this. So if anybody I, listening, I've heard there, they- Heard it occasionally, but it's not super distracting okay. while you're talking. Just, just so listeners know what's going on, I wanna, I'm going to keep this in the podcast. But uh, man, it's super windy right now in LA. Anyway, the um, there's this truck moment that looks like Justin Lin trying to, uh, you know, like windmill dunk on Chris Nolan. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the truck flip in the Dark Knight. It's because the truck is like I don't know six times longer than the semi that that was in the Dark Knight. And uh, there's this moment where this orange car sort of pulls out and turns sideways in front of that truck and it is um part of you know as much as physics can play into the, a movie like this is part of the physics that uh helps that truck flip over and then at the very very end of this trailer after han is reintroduced one of the last shots we see is him like drifting out uh into the street in an orange car and so it's that same car that is part of that action scene. So I wonder if in the actual movie itself, it is going to be what you're talking about, where he sort of, yeah, drifts in out of nowhere and helps flip that thing over. And then all the drivers are like, who the hell was that? What's going on? And then it's revealed to be Han. I'm not sure if they're going to do it that way or the other way around where he's just like joins the crew, um, you know, and, and is part of the plan from the beginning or something. But um, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to point that out as like one of those little things that I noticed during the, the trailer breakdown. Um, speaking of trailer breakdowns, during the Super Bowl, we saw a sort of a, a triple trailer for um, Marvel's Disney Plus shows, and you did a trailer breakdown of, what is it, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, and Loki, right? Yeah. All three of the shows are featured uh, in this quick 30-second spot that aired during the Super Bowl. Uh, a lot of people thought there were going to be just a, there's going to be just a separate trailer for Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision, but it turned out to be this just quick tease of sort of all of the Marvel shows, uh, or at least the first three live action Marvel shows that are coming to Disney Plus this year and into 2021. So um, it's just quick snippets of footage and no real context as far as like story is concerned or anything like that. Uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier footage is mostly just like quick beats of uh, brief action moments. You know, there's like skydivers with wingsuits and one of them turns around with guns, but you can't really see who's under the helmets. Uh, one of them kind of looks like Jeremy Renner, which I don't know if Hawkeye's going to be in that series somehow for a quick cameo or what before he gets his own show. Hmm. Uh, you know, you got Falcon flying through the sky. You've got uh, Bucky pointing a gun at Baron Zemo, Daniel Brühl's character from Captain America Civil War. There's a brief tease of uh, Wyatt Russell as U.S. agent, but they don't show him in full because it's just a quick shot from behind of him running through this like marching band fireworks thing at some kind of football game. Um, and so, yeah, there's not a lot to be uh, details to be gleaned from Falcon and the Winter Soldier other than just, hey, these two guys are back. Uh, you know, Sam Wilson's throwing around Cap Shield, getting used to his uh, you know new mantle. And, you know, that's coming to, to Disney Plus soon. All right. Um, the, the WandaVision stuff is much more intriguing because it gives us a better glimpse at just how trippy and uh, weird the series is going to be. Um, Kevin Feige and Marvel uh, have talked about this kind of being like a very trippy sitcom kind of show uh, following Wanda Maximoff, who is Scarlet Witch and Vision uh, with Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen reprising their roles. And we get a glimpse of exactly how they're doing this with various quick shots of both Wanda and Vision 
in different decades of sitcoms. So it starts off by showing them in black and white, like a 50s, 60s style vibe, you know, like a leave it to beaver, bewitched kind of situation. But then you see these very fast flashes of how Wanda looks in different decades. There's a shot of her in this very, uh, you know, groovy kind of 1970s dress. There's a shot of her looking like she's uh, in a kind of Roseanne style sitcom wearing flannel and suspenders. There's another shot of uh, her wearing the actual comic accurate Scarlet Witch costume, which I, I can only imagine will probably be used as a Halloween costume. It looks like it takes place in like a modern day sitcom setting. Hmm. And then and then there's also a shot of uh, her with Vision in what appears to be a 90s style sitcom setting. And the intriguing detail here is they're looking at these two cribs as two pacifiers uh, shoot up and fall down into the cribs, which would seem to hint that they're twin kids uh, from Marvel Comics will be making an appearance in this series somehow. Uh, those those two kids actually uh, in the comics are um, mutants, though they're not called mutants in the MCU currently, uh, named William and Thomas, who are also known as Wiccan and Speed. And they have their own uh, special abilities. And those kids grow up to be part of Young Avengers. So it's possible this could, you know, ultimately serve as a gateway to seeing a Young Avengers team at some point, whether it's on Disney Plus or in the MCU. But just just these shots alone make this look like it's going to be a real, uh, you know, mind-numbing kind of ex- experience in, like, you know, the best way possible. Like, it's, it seems like we're really going to be inside the psyche of Scarlet Witch or maybe even Vision, you know, depending on what this is about. And I wonder if there's... Uh, maybe the soul stone will still come into play somehow in mm-hmm. this. Um, since obviously that was, you know, what gave vision his life. And it, it really just all depends on what it is, you know, that the story is because there are shots of uh, Wanda in this show where she's in color, but her surroundings are the 1950s, 60s, black and white style sitcom. So it's, it'll be interesting to see exactly how this, uh, this story plays out for WandaVision. It looks unlike, unlike anything Marvel's done before, but in a very intriguing way. Before we jump to Loki, and I, I'm guessing there's not much to talk about there, but um, really quickly, the uh, you mentioned like the sort of 90s look and like the, uh, the two cribs and the, the pacifiers and everything. Do you think that... Um, like you're talking about the, a potential lead-in to a Young Avengers kind of thing, and I think there's been some speculation that... Um, what is her name? Kate Bishop, the uh, the the new Hawkeye, might be a part of that kind of project if they if Marvel were to put something like that uh, into production, because um, this image of Wanda and Vision with these babies is set in the 90s. That would kind of make sense, right? If uh, age-wise for these characters, if they were born in the 90s, to you know, if if we were to jump back into what would be like the current time for the MCU, do you think they could cast? Somebody who, uh, I don't know, like the, the age range, that seems to line up, doesn't it, a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's certainly possible, but it kind of depends, I guess, how the series moves through the the narrative structure of these decades. Because there is um, a very quick shot of Wanda in this uh, trailer where she's in 1970s garb in a living room that kind of uh, looks like it has the same style of like the Brady Bunch, where it looks very much like uh, Wanda is pregnant. Hmm. So... Since that's in the 70s, that would be kind of weird. So I guess it kind of just depends on how time goes by in, with regards to the, the decade settings of these sitcoms that they're being shown in. Um, so, like, you know, I don't know if it's if it's a weird way of presenting, like, time passing, 
you know, around them or if it's all in her head or, you know, or what it is. Oh, but that's it's... interesting. Like it could be like, um, it's all technically taking place, you know, at, at one point on the timeline, but their reality is, you know, is being, uh, viewed through the lens of these different time periods, even though they're not right. actually jumping through time. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. But then again, we also have to take in the fact, the consideration that this show is supposed to tie directly into Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. Uh, so, and as we've learned, you know, things in the quantum realm, are odd when it comes to time so if that has any effect on the multiverse and how time passes then you know we really have no idea how that's gonna operate <laughs> all right so let's jump to loki what what is there um to sort of uh, gleam onto uh from from this little i guess mini tease yeah so loki doesn't come out until 2021 but they um right at the end of the the trailer they had a little bit of a beat with tom hiddleston back as loki and the, the one interesting thing about this is the line that he has, he says, I'm, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. And what he's wearing looks like a prison jumpsuit. And if you pause it and you look at that jumpsuit, there is a sort of stylized font that says TVA. Uh, and that very much seems to be a reference to the Time Variance Authority, which is a group that was introduced to Marvel Comics in 1986 in an issue of Thor. And they are an interdimensional agency that is tasked with monitoring and maintaining the multiverse. So if a timeline or someone in a timeline becomes too unruly or dangerous and threatens the existence of that timeline or another, the TVA's job is to deal with it. And since we know Loki is supposed to be about him using the time stone to jump to different periods in time, uh, causing mischief as he constantly does, it would make sense that the TVA gets involved. And it would seem that they have captured him. And so that makes me wonder if the entire series is told from the perspective of Loki being held in prison, being interrogated by the TVA. Uh, and then I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the show he escapes and, you know, that would lead us into a second season of Loki or perhaps into something that ties into, again, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, because this series is also supposed to have some sort of tie to that sequel as well. Hmm. Man, it's kind of a shame that um, Tommy Lee Jones was cast so early in the MCU. I think he, he showed up in uh, the original Captain America because it would be so cool for him to be one of these time cops and just like hunting Loki because it would just be like a, a remake of The Fugitive basically but where Tommy Lee Jones is, uh, is you know, grumbling his way through space and time trying to track down Tom Hiddleston. That would be awesome. Would be awesome. Uh, all right, so let's jump to our, our last story of the day. And this is one of, of a, uh, a current Saturday Night Live cast member. Um, I like Cecily Strong a lot, and uh, I know you do too. And she has a, a new uh, comedy musical series coming to Apple TV+. And I just wanted to uh, make sure that we could put this on people's radar because I think it has a really cool premise. What's the show about? Yeah, so the show doesn't have a title yet, uh, but it comes from the Despicable Me writers, Cinco Paul and Ken Dario. Uh, and like you said, the premise is an interesting one because uh, it finds a couple who goes out on a backpacking trip to reinvigorate their relationship, kind of fix some problems. And they stumble upon this town called Schmigadoon. And for some reason, everyone in this town acts like they're in a big studio musical from the 1940s. And soon they find out that they can't leave until they find their quote unquote true love. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty cool premise because it's basically like La La Land with a little bit of Pleasantville thrown in there. Uh, and the fact that this comes from uh, SNL executive producer Lauren Michaels is even more intriguing. When it comes to picking uh, TV comedy projects, he usually has a pretty good eye, especially when it comes to working with uh, SNL cast members and alum. And yeah, this just sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It's been in the works at uh, Apple for an entire year, so they've had a lot of time to hone it. And the good news is, is this doesn't mean Cecily Strong is leaving SNL either. 
uh, because uh, both Keenan Thompson and A.D. Bryant have their own shows. Uh, A.D. has Shrill at Hulu, and Keenan has his own self-titled show, The Keenan Show, at NBC. And they've still been able to stay as cast members on SNL. So uh, presumably, Cecily Strong would do the same. She's been on the show for a while, though, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the show was big that maybe she does uh, end up leaving SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that would be a big loss for SNL. But, you know, they all have to leave at some point. Um Unless you're Keenan Thompson, but, <laughs> but yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about this. Uh, Cecily just recently had a, a hilarious sketch on SNL um, in, during the Christmas run of episodes, uh, where they did this really weird rendition of "I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus" when Scarlett Johansson hosted, uh, and she's she has a great uh, voice for musicals, and so I'm I'm very excited to see how this show turns out. Yeah, I love the premise. It sounds like. Um almost like Big Fish, you know, how there's that, that moment when uh, I think it's Ewan McGregor's character like wanders into that town that sort of feels like it's from a whole different era. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I like that the concept. And um, Apple TV Plus, I just signed up for it because I, I got a new phone recently and there's that whole thing where like if you buy an Apple product, you get a free year of the service. So I haven't actually had a chance to dive into any of that content yet, but um, hopefully this show will come out within my <laughs> within my year so I, at least I can watch it uh, before I end end up having to make the decision of whether or not I'm going to pay to keep uh, that service because really it seems like there, there aren't there isn't really that much like must see stuff on Apple TV plus yet um, so hopefully they can uh, continue to develop projects like this that sound really fun and, and interesting and have cool people involved and, and sort of um, yeah continue to uh, to make that a, more of a draw than it is right now anyway so uh, okay that that is going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily Brad where can people find more of your work online Always on SlashFilm.com, also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and you can check out uh, my podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, available on iTunes and other places where podcasts are available. You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. Uh, Chris and I just finished, I think our, I think Chris is done, our, our full uh, Sundance coverage, so you can read all of our reviews and stuff there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Hopefully we'll do a, an email, uh, like a mailbag segment sometime soon. I know, I'm sure we have a lot of, uh, of backlog there. Uh, please also remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.